The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello and welcome. This is the latest episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Peter Lapp. He's a postnatal specialist and he's based in the UK. And uh, actually, we're really excited to have Peter on here because he is going to talk about an area that I've actually had increasing increasing interest in recently and working with, um, well, not really, not babies, but working with the mothers of uh, babies who have just recently had babies, I should say. And it's not really something that I've had before, but it's kind of something that's showing up more and more on my radar uh, as of late. So the more information I can get, the better. And uh, with that, Peter, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks very much for having me, Sean. Much appreciated, man. Yeah, not a problem, not a problem. Okay, so Peter, uh, you know, I always like to start from more or less the beginning or like give people, you know, a context in which we are speaking in. So I know stuff about you, but, you know, a lot of people probably don't. So, and just so we kind of uh, know where we are and where we're coming from. So uh, what brought us here today? Yeah, no, cool. Um, So, yeah, my name is Peter Lapp. Like you said, I'm a personal trainer, postnatal uh, personal trainer uh, in Edinburgh, in Scotland. I've been doing the postnatal stuff for about 10 years now or something like that. Um, I've written X amount of blogs and articles and for magazines and all that sort of stuff on the subject of postpartum exercise and postpartum recovery, postnatal recovery and all that sort of thing. And I... Like I said, I have my own PT little personal training company, mm-hmm. and I've got my online website, Healthy Postnatal Body, uh, and the Healthy Postnatal Body podcast as well, much similar uh, to your own, where I mainly talk to experts, uh, talk to interesting people, and I answer uh, listeners and members' emails and all that sort of stuff. Okay, okay. So, so how did you get into this line of work? Yeah, so that, that's that's it. when I first. So I, I used to have a proper job before I became a personal trainer. Um, by mm-hmm. proper job, I mean office-based project management. You know, the 60, 70 hour work week type mm-hmm. thing. Um, then I retrained to become a personal trainer, and I don't know what it's like in the states, but in the UK, it's not a particularly arduous transition. Uh, you don't have to go to, like to uni for four years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I became a I became a personal trainer. And I was mainly training, I found I was mainly training women between the ages of like 24 to, to 32. For some reason, that was my main clientele base, uh, just for aesthetics, uh, some for athletic ability, um, most of them weight loss and just, just general toning up stuff. Um, I was always really active uh, uh, writing about exercise anyway, so I had hundreds of blog posts up and I was connected to a decent international group of personal trainers had a large group of 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 colleagues that i was very friendly with and one of my friends was based in new york um very successful guy uh one of those you know three four hundred dollars an hour personal trainers that we all have seen on the internet he he, he was Mm -hmm. that guy and he was complaining to me he was talking to me how he had very similar clientele to a group to to what i had and he was complaining about how his clients always dropped off 
Uh, he said, yeah, because women give birth, women fall pregnant and give birth at a certain age, they want to start a family. He said, I'm just not qualified. And these women can't train with me anymore because I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know if you've come across this in, in, the, in the PT industry. A lot of personal trainers are excellent personal trainers, but as far as business people, business-mindedness goes, they're not really as uh, clued up as, as they might otherwise be. So I just said, Dude, there must be a simple answer to your problem, and that is get certified to become a postpartum trainer, to, mm -hmm. to, to work with women that, that have given birth. And so I did, because, you know, I could see the same thing happening in my business or was going to happen in my business. Um, what I didn't realize was that the, first, the, the postpartum exercise side of things, 10, 10 or so years ago, I'm talking, right? So I'm talking quite a while ago was so massively, it, it just wasn't an in, it, it just wasn't a field of interest for most personal trainers. PTs just didn't do it. So you had your course. So I'd had my course, I got my, all my qualifications and all that sort of stuff. And before I knew it, I was the only one in Edinburgh really offering it. Although, and Edinburgh is like a city of like 600,000 people or something like that. So we have about 5,000 people are born here, 5,000 babies are born here every year. So that means 5,000 potential women that have postpartum issues. And I wrote about this sort of stuff an awful lot. And before you know it, the BBC, uh, which is a TV channel in, in, in the UK, right. uh, TV corporation in the UK, got in touch with me saying, can you do some stuff with us for BBC Radio? And I said, and it was an, like an exercise in older moms or something like that. It was, can we do an interview with you? And they had a Commonwealth Games athlete on. Uh, Joe Pavey, and I was on that panel, and there were one or two other people, and for every specialist question, they kind of turned to me. And that kind of blew things up a little bit, because before I know it, I just had emails from all over the world coming in saying, I have this problem. How do I address this? Uh, or I have diastasis recta, or I have back pain, and I've had that for the past, I don't know, 10 years since I gave birth to my second child or something like that. And I just kept writing articles and I kept writing more and more stuff, which just led to me getting more and more emails. And it just made me realize that the area, like I said, 10 or so years ago, it's, it's a slightly different landscape now. But the area, most women didn't know what postpartum issues were, postpartum issues they could have, such as diastasis recta, you know, that separation of the mm -hmm. stomach muscles and around the belly and all that sort of stuff. Um, they didn't know that that could be fixed through exercise, and that is not even remarkably difficult to do. Um, they always spoke about the mum-tum being a, you know, a price you had to pay for having kids. The same with pelvic floor problems, the same with back pain. Ah, yeah, but, you know, I have, I have a lot of back pain now that I'm a mum, but that is just the way it is. And I said, it just wasn't out there enough that these are all things that could easily be addressed just by doing the correct exercises and by putting a bit of work in. Um, and like I said, it's completely, slightly different now um, because most people are now at least aware that when they have an issue, they can get in touch with someone um, that just says, okay, we'll do the right thing. And you know, you don't have a problem anymore. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, definitely pelvic floor issues. That's something that has um, been brought to my attention quite a bit um, mm. in the last several months or so. Uh, diastasis um, recta. Did I say that right? 
Yeah, that's, 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 that's everybody pronounces it differently, man. Everyone pronounces it a little differently. Um, so I, I have seen that too, and I, you know, I don't have any clients that have brought that particular issue to my attention, mm-hmm. but I have seen that in um, women who have had, you know, babies recently, even just as recently as a year ago. Like they still say they still have this issue with the separation of their abdominal muscles. Um, so. What don't we really understand about working with these issues here, especially pelvic floor issues? Because I've heard, you know, back and forth recommendations about, you know, especially doing the Kegels and stuff like yeah. that. Um, I've heard uh, conversations saying that, well, that, that just doesn't go far enough. That doesn't really address the issue. And just that uh, anatomically, it just is not very uh, sufficient. So what don't we really understand about addressing these issues? Oh, no, that's a superb question. Man. Um but what the issue I find a lot in 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 the health and fitness industry is we tend to oversimplify problems mm-hmm. quite easily and make things black and white. So indeed, um, Kegel exercises are a prime example of this. When people are talking pelvic floor problems, such as a pelvic floor weakness and and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, the pelvic floor is a complex area. I mean, there's about twenty, thirty, forty different muscles feeding in there. Um. So to think that one exercise could potentially resolve any issues in that area seems optimistic to me. Um, and I've, I've much like yourself, I've spoken to pelvic floor experts uh, on my podcast and people who have created various devices and all that sort of stuff to, to prevent pelvic floor dysfunction and, and help ease that off. They will already all admit that it's, the biggest problem we face when it comes to postpartum exercise is that most people don't really know what that area should feel like prenatal anyways. So if you can imagine, um, if you had a male client and they've had a bicep injury for a while, and then they come to you and they said, dude, I, I need to get my arm strength back up. And then you say, okay, we're going to do some bicep curls and hammer curls and, and, and all that sort of stuff. That client is likely to know what a bicep feels like when it's working properly, right? That is just, I know what that squeeze feels like. Women tend to have no idea what their pelvic floor should feel like, what a healthy healthy pelvic floor feels like. Most people, and you'll probably come across this with clients as well, most people don't really know what a strong core actually feels like. We have an idea about abdominal muscles and what it looks like, but how a how a well-functioning core actually works and how you feel within that is a completely it's a completely different beast. So then you have people coming to me, for instance, and they say, um, most common, then there are two things postpartum. I still pee myself, I have leakage problems, right? Which again, is completely, uh, it's very common, but it's not right. And it's, it's not normal and it can't be, it can be resolved. Um, or they have a need to have a round tummy. So for the round tummy, what they tend to do is, is, is uh, crunchy type exercises and planks and all that sort of stuff, things that aren't necessarily uh, that beneficial. And for the pelvic floor, they do Kegel exercises because, you know, if you Google pelvic strengthening of the pelvic floor, you get Kegel exercises at the top, like five pages of Google. <laughs> 
are pretty much Kegel exercises. And it's typically what's re recommended to them by their primary, their primary physician too. Oh, absolutely. And this is one of the things that bugs me a bit, at least about the UK healthcare system is that, you know, if, if I, a lot of my clients are, are doctors and uh, GPs and all that sort of stuff, general practitioners. So th that's your primary person that you go to, but they are there and they're phenomenal. They're phenomenal physicians. They're really, really good at what they do, and I would not slate them. But they're not specialists in a particular area, mm -hmm. right? They are awesome at 4,000 different things, and they'll diagnose stuff, and then they'll be able to send you on your merry way to find the right specialist. Um, what I found, and I, I did this, like I said, in Edinburgh, 5,000 people are born uh, every year. So I, one of my clients is a private GP, and I said, how many postpartum women do you see a year? And he said, maybe four. So he maybe has four consultations every year with postpartum women. Um, and these are like 10, 15-minute consultations. These are not particularly long because that's what the NHS kind of buys you in, uh, in Edinburgh. Um, and the problem with that is this guy sees 2,000 people a year. So if only four or five of them are postpartum, he has no reason to invest a lot of time and, and, and money in investigating what, that, what their issues could be and what the best way to resolve it is. So what he then does is go with the standard advice, and that is saying... Uh, that lady comes to him and says, yeah, I still have have a bit of leakage. Okay, do your pelvic floor exercises. Mm -hmm. That's it. You might get a leaflet if you're lucky. Uh, or see a pelvic floor physio, right? If, if you're lucky, you get referred. Uh, for diastasis recti, yeah, just look up some diastasis recti stuff on, online and, and, and see, see if that works. Um, so Kegel exercises, don't get me wrong, they serve, a, they, they serve a purpose and they serve a function but they are not necessarily sufficient to help everybody. They, they will work for 50% of people, they'll get a stronger pelvic floor and they will resolve their issue. But the other 50% of people, is quite often uh, we find that they do the standard thing and it doesn't resolve the issue, and therefore they just leave it because the exercise didn't work. Right, right. So what would you really recommend, though, in addition to the Kegel exercises, too, to just kind of like... If, give it more of a, of a desired effect. Yeah, if we really, if we really think about, because I, I like to think of things in terms of athletic ability. I, mean, I used to work with a lot of tennis players and and, and, and all that sort of stuff, uh, football players, and by foot, I, I mean soccer players. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't mean proper football players. Right. Got that. <laughs> um, so some soccer players that I, I think in terms of athletic ability and. You know Jeff Cavalier, right? Everybody kind of knows right, right. Jeff Cavalier, right? Oh, yeah. If you, yeah, if you want to look like an athlete, you want to need to train like an athlete and all right. that sort of stuff. <laughs> if, we, if I start with the premise that, that my job is to train somebody for life, as in for, to be fit for purpose, Right? That when, when you train an athlete, you train them for the purpose of being better at tennis, being better at football, mm -hmm. being better at whatever. When you train postpartum, um, what you're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is get people to function as best they can 
at their in their daily life. That is all I'm going for. Right. Sitting around doing pelvic floor crunches on the toilet, trying pretending to hold your pee, doesn't get you to the comedy club and laugh, and then hold your pee. Right? It doesn't get you to the gym and put uh, for for female. This is 60, 70, 80, 90 kilos on your back and squat or do big deadlifts whilst be able to control your pelvic floor. The only way you can do that stuff is if you all train all these things at the same time. So whilst you're training, you really, or I, I really think you need to take the holistic approach uh, and say, we're going to do glute exercises, sure. We're going to do squats. We're going to do lunges. At the same time, I want you to focus on your pelvic floor. We don't have to isolate this stuff. Unless you have a really weak pelvic floor, you can make it part of a general recovery program. But it doesn't include star jumps and all that sort of stuff. I'm not talking let's do plyometrics straight away. That's just asking for trouble, right? But if we ask progression in, into a training model, we can just say, Someone comes to me with a pelvic floor leakage issues nine out of ten times. And I'm not far wrong when I say nine out of ten, because it's, it's that big a deal. It is because pelvic floor issues are caused by people not breathing properly when they're exerting themselves. Not so, breathing properly. Not, be, not exhaling during an exercise. Hmm. You know, when you do, do uh, I take it you lift, right? So you yeah. do, yeah. So you go to the gym and you deadlift. Uh, you go for one rep max because you, you know you're messing about and you're like, I want to see what my new, what my new one rep max is. Most people who do go for a personal best, they load themselves up, they pick it up, and then they exhale as they drop the weight. Right? Mm -hmm. That's completely fine when you're doing that for your one rep max. That is not cool if you're only lifting 20 kilos, right? You shouldn't right. be bracing your core, holding that in, building that pressure, building that tension as you're only lifting a light weight, such as moving a child from the car to the floor. But, and, but that is what people are doing. Now, the issue you have, of course, as guys already, and you'll have seen the videos uh, of strong men, lifting big weights, they're holding their breath and they're pumping weights and they squat and they start to bleed from their nose and all that sort of stuff because the pressure buildup is just too much. And mm -hmm. The blood pressure shoots up. Women have an extra orifice, so to be very blunt about it. Yeah, okay. Women have a vagina. Can you see where this problem is going now? Yeah. <laughs> right? Did, <laughs> that's what I mean. Exhale through the effort. If I find that if I teach people to breathe through, through effort, and, and that is something we quite often have to teach people. We have to train people to do that sort of stuff. Their pelvic floor problems get significantly better because we're decreasing the pressure. None of my clients and every person postpartum, uh, everyone working with moms will see this. None of my clients still, still run to the toilet right before we start the training to squeeze the last few drops out so they don't pee themselves anymore. And we can squat big weights. They exhale through it. And as you exhale and you engage your glutes and you engage your core properly, so I'm not talking about bracing, I'm talking about ex uh, engaging your core properly. So making sure the muscles are tightening up a little bit, so to speak, through the motion, so contracting, if you will. 
um, that prevents the pelvic floor problem. It helps your pelvic floor strengthen up. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it really does. So, no, I, I didn't think about it in those terms before. The, the, it was a, a buildup of pressure, of undue pressure, and it has to be released somehow. So that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. And I'm kind of glad to hear you say this, that the best way to train the pelvic floor is just to train holistically, because that's just kind of the way I've been, I went about it. You know, that was the best way I kind of knew how to really address it. So I didn't have them doing really pelvic floor specific kind of workouts. I had them doing kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this one um, woman I work with, uh, she had a child about a year ago. This is her third child. And so um, I had her, you know, she's somewhat, she has an athletic past, so she kind of wants to be more athletic again. But she had this nagging problem that you just spoke about. And so I kind of went about that the best way I really could, just strengthening the general core and just getting her to be able to move in general in a better way. She had other little things here and there bothering her, like her, you know, her shoulder and her, uh, her knee and all that kind of stuff. Um, But then I just kind of worked that into the overall program itself. And we just kind of baby stepped it uh, here, uh, baby stepped it. And it has led to pretty dramatic changes in her. Uh, We still have kind of the the incontinence issue still kind of nagging her. Um, She, she does, she has told me that um, it has, it affects her the most during her cycles. Yeah, sure. Yeah, which I think makes intuitively makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. But have you found that to be the case as well? Uh, absolutely. And, and I find with most, most women, mostly female listeners will know this, bloating during the period is significant. Uh, that, that, that's one of, mm-hmm. one of the things that everybody talks about, right? That, uh, that menstrual bloat almost. When the women are on the period, the belly is a bit rounder, so to speak. That's all internal pressure. So if you look at this thing, and, and most things, by the way, to do with postpartum, at least with, with the core in the pelvic floor, are all about internal pressure. That is all it is, right? Uh, diastasis recti separation of the stomach muscles happens because internal pressure was such that the body had no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some interesting theories as to why that happens and all that sort of stuff, but they're a bit... They're a bit they're, they're they're a bit dry if you're not really into into this sort of stuff. But fundamentally, the pressure builds up, and then it needs a it, it needs an outlet. So, right. If if bloating is a thing, and most uh, or a lot of people, not 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 most people, a lot of people find this during their period, their bloating is worse. That is something that comes with the period. That is not because they have different dietary habits during their period or something like that. But if you then add a particular diet to it, for instance, some people have reactions to certain foods, and that can be completely different. For some people, it's white carbohydrates. For other people, it's milk. For other people, it's one of my clients, it was apples, right? They couldn't eat an apple without bloating. That then also leads to more pressure on the inter, uh, internal pressure on, on the core and the pelvic floor. And therefore, if you then have a slight, slightly weaker pelvic floor, so to speak, that can then lead to one or one, um, one or two uh, small leakage issues. 
So all that stuff, all that stuff kind of works together. It, 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 it's like one, it's more than one, it, it's, it's one problem that causes two or three other, other issues. And uh, certain, at certain times we can do something about it, but we can't do anything about internal pressure when it comes to pregnancy. Right? We can't. Mm -hmm. This is why I always say, if you're going to get pelvic floor problems during uh, during pregnancy, you're going to get pelvic floor problems during pregnancy. I can't make your baby not grow. Right? That is just the baby needs somewhere to go. Uh, we know from diastasis recti, for instance, a hundred percent of women have diastasis recti during pregnancy because those muscles have to separate. So that that's an absolute no brainer. And I did a chat with Anthony Lowe, the physio detective, uh, a while ago, and he had an interesting study that he brought to the table. He said that women who have less diastasis recti, so the separation is less, tend to have more pelvic floor problems. And that is because this, the, the pressure here, here it's holding up, that means somewhere else it has to give. Mm -hmm. That is kind of uh, kind of what he was saying. I'm oversimplifying the, the the study that he brought to the table, but the numbers were pretty decent, um, and it was like level four evidence. So, so that's that's sound stuff. Um, so all we have to do is, in my opinion, right, and this is this is maybe just me, but if some if the problem is so obvious and it's internal pressure, all we have to work on then is releasing internal pressure and doing what we can to to minimize that. Uh, certain times we can't do anything about it, like I said, pregnancy, period. You're going to get what you're going to get during your period for any female listener to this, right? The bloating is good, the period bloat is going to be the period bloat. There is nothing, there aren't any hormones you can take that will, uh, and I know they're selling them. <laughs> That's why I mentioned it. I know people are selling them. There aren't hormones that you can take that stop a bloat during, pregnancy, uh, during a period. That is just what it is. Um, it does show you that if you still have some uh, incontinence issues or some, some leakage during your period, it does show that you have one or two things that you could probably still work on, on, on improving. Um, because although it is quite common, it is quite... Uh, it, it, it's not normal and it's not really the way the body should respond to something like a bit of bloating and all that sort of stuff. But it is really normal. I mean, 60% of postpartum women suffer from it for up to a year or two postpartum. So if you're talking, saying your client had, had a baby or her, her third child like a year ago, a year is nothing in postpartum recovery terms. Gotcha, gotcha. So we've kind of gone over uh, quite a bit here. So we've talked about how, you know, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of good information out there about, you know, what women can do when, after having a baby in terms of like exercise and in terms of dealing with postpartum issues like incontinence or uh, diastasis recti. Um, I'm still practicing saying that. <laughs> the separation of abdominal muscles, let's call yeah. it that. Um, so... Is it just something that it, the healthcare system is just doesn't serve very well? Is it just yeah. not something it very puts a lot of emphasis on? In in, in short, it, it's your first point. It's uh, John Oliver, the the comedian last night with John Oliver, mm -hmm. um, did a wonderful bit. I think a couple of years ago about medical bias, and 
Uh, it was like a, one one of his twenty minute sort of sort of mm-hmm. ranty things, and 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 he showed that um, most medication and almost everything in in the healthcare system is geared around men, right? That is just the way it is, up to the point where medication for ovarian cancer have never actually been tested on women up until like five or ten years ago. It's only been tested on men because it's difficult to test on women for many, many reasons. And and, and, and it is some of them are, are, are quite good, solid reasons. You know, women could be pregnant. You don't want to kill unborn children and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. We tend to find, and it's getting slightly better now, I did an interview with Dr. Beth Dupriest, uh, a while ago, she's a PhD doctor, so not a not a medical doctor. She's and she she holds a PhD in the uh, in the vaginal biome and all that sort of stuff. So it was a rather uh, for a middle aged white guy such as myself, it was an enlightening experience. And she said that only four percent of all the research done into uh, healthcare issues to do with infection goes to women's health, 4%. Whereas they know that 25% of all infections, every single one of them, are urinary tract infections mainly found in women. So if we think of that discrepancy alone, the other 75 are pretty much evenly split between male and and, and female infections. Only 4% of resources are allocated in in her particular field towards feminine health. 96% of research is done towards to, towards male health. That is an issue. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I'm not saying that's not through sexism or misogyny or anything like that. That is just the system is kind of set up that way. And you know, in the old days doctors used to experiment on themselves. Uh, of course, a lot of medical professionals were male, and they they tend to drift to the top. And academics used to be male, and all that sort of stuff. They determine where funding goes. Uh, I don't know about yourself, but I, like I said, I'm 48 now, and then un- until I started really looking into this for the past 10 years or so, I had no idea about half this stuff. And when I say no idea, it's, I mean I didn't know this was a thing. Now. I've I've been married for 16 years. And I only learned about this stuff 10 years ago. So I've had a wife for six or so years. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I didn't know. I wasn't familiar with it. I'm familiar, of course, with the basics. I'm not the guy that can't go to the shop to buy tampons and, and, and pads and all that sort of stuff. But if I don't know about basic stuff, as a guy, and it's not up to my wife to educate me, by the way, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if if people who decide on funding are not familiar at all with there even being a problem, then then that becomes an issue. And if the research isn't done into this stuff, and it isn't, I only know of one person who's currently doing, who's currently studying diastasis recta for her PhD, uh, and that's a girl in Denmark called, I want to say Sandra Hook, but I, I might be club, but it, it's, it's, she's only one in the world looking into an effa- a condition, a PhD level that affects 100% of women during pregnancy. 
Now, if, if we, and, and we know that the medical system in both in America and, and, and in the UK at least, uh, and even uh, and, and in, in Europe, is all based on, let's say, evidence-based medicine, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that a study has to be done, it has to be peer-reviewed, more studies have to be done. Then we have to find funding from somewhere uh, for implementation, run some trials within the National Health Service, see how that goes, and then maybe decide on a policy change. We're 20 years down the line before that happens, right? So if only one person studies this on PhD level now, and this is 10 years into, into me being working with postpartum women, we're, 30, we're 20 years away before the health service will actually start uh, start funding this as, as a standard sort of remedy for, uh, for postpartum women. So those, it, these issues don't get highlighted. Right. Yeah. Um, the way uh, the, the U.S. healthcare system generally seems to work is that in terms of like anything that gets funding at all, there has to be, because it's a very, um, shall we say, consumer-based yeah. in a way, commercialized in a way. For anything to get an adequate amount of funding or any, any kind of a attention or a research being done, it has to be proven that, you know, this there is a, um, there is a need, enough, a big enough need for it. Mm. You know, it gets, you know, things are just done for the sake of being theoretical are not really entertained very well. It's kind of similar to, you know, um, you know, when polio or something like that was a big problem and, you know, and before there was a vaccine for it and it was affecting, you know, millions of children and even adults, you know, there was all the, there was all the, uh, all the reason in the world for it to put their muscle behind it and find a vaccine for it because it was something that everyone was scared, scared to death of because they knew, they knew it could hit and they didn't know where, where it came from or how it yeah. started. And, and say, oh, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example right now, a more modern example, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. look, look how fast that vaccine came around. Yeah. Look how fast, look, all the money, all the research came around. I mean, it was lightning speed. You know, boom, we had a, we had a vaccine pretty quickly. So when it wants to, when it wants to move, it can move very quickly. But it has to see a need for it. And, I, you know, you're probably right. Politics play a big part of it as well, too, because this this virus was going across the globe. It was killing millions of people every day. You know, you work in the healthcare system like I do. You see the effects of it front, up front. Well, yeah. Um, you see it, what it does to people. And so it scares people. And so that gets the political process in motion. It's like, we need this vaccine or we yeah. need this. This needs to be tackled right away. Um, and so I guess pushed to the front. Uh, I imagine this is probably a lot of the same reason behind this. You know, we don't hear enough. There's not enough noise. There's not enough push behind it. And so it doesn't get um, um, center stage attention. Well, you're absolutely right. And especially when, when you're looking at COVID, especially, because uh, that's, that's a superb example. For, for these health things to move, you also need an economic incentive, right? Mm-hmm. The, the reason, I mean, I like to think the best of our politicians. I like to think that they came into politics for the right reasons and all this. So they want to help people. Let me put that first. But just helping people doesn't seem to be enough to always move the needle with regards to let's get stuff done. 
in mm-hmm. both in both in Washington and in Westminster over here. However, the f- prospect of losing billions and billions of dollars due to economic inactivity and all that sort of stuff, or skyrocketing hospital costs and all that sort of stuff, that's definitely a problem. Um, and the interesting thing, especially around diastasis recti, is that the definition of diastasis recti, the narrow definition of diastasis recti, is separation of the stomach muscles along the linea alba. And that's mm-hmm. it, more than two and a half centimeters. And that's it. That is just the separation. Now, the separation in itself as a standalone isn't a problem. It's like you're removing, you know, when you have, when you have a big patio outside and you're removing one plank, right? Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. there's a gap there and it doesn't look as pretty. But fundamentally, your patio sound, right? You can put your furniture everywhere and all that sort of stuff, right? That's how diastasis recti is, is literally, because of that, that's what the definition of diastasis recti is. That is how it's treated. It's treated as an aesthetic issue and everything else should still mm-hmm. work okay. Right. The problem is, of course, that the human body doesn't function like that, right? If I remove that plank, that means something else has to take the load. Mm-hmm. Uh, pelvic floor, your lower back, uh, your posture, and and all that sort of stuff. When that happens, people start to get in pain. They start to get uncomfortable. But the the diagnosis most physios will give you is, and and again, at uh, Anthony Lowe on my my little podcast not that long ago, and he disagrees with me on this. By the way. Um, he said, no, that's the definition. So it's not a problem. It's not a problem until the client says, it's an aesthetic issue. I, I, I want to get this fixed. And I'm like, dude, if the aesthetic problem leads to much bigger problems, we need to have that as, as the incentive. So, so indeed, telling people uh, that it's just aesthetics. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, your stomach is just a bit rounder. That is just, it's, it's, then makes that problem, like what you were saying, it removes the, the, the urgency for a fix, right? Completely. It's, it's, if, I tell, if you tell me, Pete, I have a big round back and all that sort of stuff, say you have real posture issues and you're all hunched forward and all that sort of stuff, and I look like the hunchback or something like that, and you don't complain about the pain that comes with it, but you just say, I'm all hunched over. I have no incentive to fix that. You have no incentive to fix that uh, because then it's yeah, it's just an aesthetic issue. Yeah, you know, Sean walks around a bit hunched and all that sort of stuff. There's no need to fix that. If however you make that a physical health problem, as in I have back pain here, I cost the medical service $5,000 a year or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm off work two weeks of the year with back pain. My boss has to buy an ergonomic chair and an ergonomic desk. I have to bring a consultant in just for me. And all of a sudden, your problem, which is an aesthetic issue, becomes a $100,000 a year problem. Now we have an incentive to fix this, especially when the solution, as you know, for most posture problems, is 700 bucks for personal training. Right, seven hundred dollars hey. for personal training strengthens those muscles up, stretches that out a bit, and all of a sudden, we're cooking with gas, and you don't have a hunch anymore. Uh, a right. hunch anymore. Yeah. And so you've just solved 
$100,000 a year problem with a $700 solution, which is essentially what the COVID thing was. The vaccine cost, I know, five bucks a pop, so they gave that for free because not giving it for free would have cost billions and billions of dollars, more than we currently spend. Um, but we have to be honest about the actual cost about things like diastasis recti and pelvic floor problems. Right. And most women's health issues uh, in Scotland had just introduced this law to stop what they call period poverty. Well, women who can't afford pads and, and tampons and all that sort of stuff during their period. That's a real problem worldwide, but in Scotland they, they did something about it by saying everybody gets it for free. What are you charging people for? If they need it for free, they can walk into a restroom somewhere and just pick up some parts, which seems sensible to me. Mm -hmm. If you make that, because it's an economic problem that needs to be fixed, because that leads to infections, at least the problems on the NHS and all. So it's cheaper right. to fix the problem than it is right. to just manage it. And that's what we need to get to with this women's <clears throat> health stuff. Right. Yeah. I think you hit upon something very important there is that this is taken as an aesthetic problem so mm -hmm. therefore it's not there's not a real big problem at all yeah, it's like you said it's like okay yeah your tummy looks pooched out and right it doesn't look very sexy and it's not yeah. real you know you probably probably don't want to pose for photographs looking like that but you know in the, on the whole it's not a real issue because it's just more about looks mm -hmm. um, but it's not it's not just about looks yeah like what you said your body is the body is not contrary to this uh, Newtonian model that people we've made about the human body and how it's actually built up. It's not just a stack of bricks on top of one another. You know, it is a, it is a very fluid and continuously dynamic, um, just like universe of different systems all working in, in, uh, in tandem, in, in tandem with one another. And you take, you take out one thing, the body will compensate for what's missing. You know, and while pain may not show up right away, it will over time show up and it will cause more problems. I, and I can see that too, because I can see how this pooched look just structurally, you know, if it's constantly pooched out and there's a weakness in the abdominal cavity, if there's a weakness in the abdominal cavity, this is going to come back in say like a, a lumbar lordosis, yeah, exactly. you know, an excessively curved spine, which will cause pain, you mm -hmm. know, over time. Um, or at least a uh, debilitated movement. Um, so I think that's, pr I think that's probably, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I think that's probably the biggest issue right there. It's, it's treated just like, it's a, it's about just vanity and looks and not about actual health. Yeah. That, and that's, uh, you're 100% right. And, and, and like I said, physios mm -hmm. disagree with me on this, right? So a physio will say, no, the definition of this problem is X. All the problems that you're talking about, uh, they, they would say, are caused by a weak core and all that sort of stuff and are caused by other things. The problem is, indeed, that all these things are correlated to this mm -hmm. one particular problem. And unless we take a wider approach to, to this sort of stuff and, and, and realize that, like you said, the human body is remarkably complex. Everything is connected. I don't know a single physio that things lower back pain is always in the lower back, as in is always caused by problems in the lower back. Right. In fact, no, it's I know always more, something else. Yeah, I, I, I know more physios that say it's never the lower back than it is the lower back. 
Yet when it comes to these particular things, we just look at the pelvic floor as a standalone organ. Uh, we look at uh, the core, uh, especially the, the front part of the core, the, as a standalone bit, and we ignore shoulders, we ignore, ignore the rhomboids, we ignore lats, we ignore all those things that are... If, I, if I'm like this... Even as a guy, because loads of guys have diastasis recti as well, right? They sit behind the desk all day and all that sort of stuff, and that gets weaker and weaker. And they eat more, they drink more, and that, those muscles separate. If I sit like this, my core is significantly less, doing significantly less, significantly less engaged than when I'm sitting up properly and straight. It just is. So therefore, by definition, if people have posture issues and I fix the posture issues, I'm part fixing the core. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that means we have to do back exercises to help fix the core. It's an absolute. So women who breastfeed, right, they're always in that position. One shoulder is always down. This is where their back pain comes from. They're pushing a pram or a buggy up a hill. And um, the example I always give, most handles on prams are like this, right? So you hold your fists out like that, and that's how you push up a pram. But we all, we, you and I both know that the best way for our shoulder blades to stay in place is for us to be like that, right? Is mm -hmm. for that to rotate like that, right? So if I'm pushing something like this all day and my shoulder blades are up and forward all day because I'm pushing a weight, something like this all day, mm -hmm. whereas I know this is much better. Why are handles on pounds not like this all the time? Right? That sort of thing. So I know that if I squeeze that back, through exercise, because I'm not going in the pram-making business, I'm just saying <laughs> that, that, that those exercises that squeeze that in place will help mm -hmm. with diastasis recti, will help right. with pelvic floor problems, because right. having a decent core means that you have less pressure on your pelvic floor. It just does. Right. And, and overall, you need to train the human body as a solid working whole organism and not just exactly kind of like exactly like what you said out and compartmentalize yeah. things into different um different categories honestly no, i think yeah and i think honestly like instead of pushing that i think they it'd be better for them if they were actually pulling it upwards. yes because it would straighten them out you know it'd be better yeah, for them really. if they were actually pulling it rather than pushing it <laughs> yeah there was a there, there was a no but you're 100 percent right there there's a there was a debate a long time ago uh like 10 or so years ago whether you on whether you should have women do lunges uh, lunge lunges because they do they wear high heels all day right that, that was the big debate like eight nine ten years ago oh, you don't need to do that because already get the muscle activation all day from wearing high heels and believe it or not that was a thing i'm not sure whatever came of it but that was a discussion no one talks about maybe stopping doing all those pressing exercises that we do with women and converting them into doing pulling motions exactly like what you're saying so if from a personal training perspective right if you you just came up with the solution there it'd be better for them to pull something all day right so why are we doing why are we doing push exercises with our female clients postpartum clients it makes no sense because we're trying to offset the daily life and that's mm -hmm. exactly the approach you take and, and what you mentioned you have if I see someone six days a week, and I tend not to, but I see someone six days a week for one hour, that means they're training six hours a week. 
there are 168 hours in the week. So that means there are 162 hours they're not with me going about their daily business. Part of my job is almost to try and offset that 160 <laughs> hours of doing right, that. Yeah. Yeah. So the one thing I don't need to do is focus on stuff they already do, which is right. So, so if you take that 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 holistic approach, which 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 you take, and you say, so what are you doing in your daily life? Well, I sit behind the desk all day and sit like this. Okay, awesome. We're not going to do bench presses. Out of your mind. You sit like this all day. You're already those muscles are short enough. We can do some bench presses or some tricepy stuff because, uh, admittedly, you know the tricep is a, is a posture muscle, but. Pulling exercises makes a hell of a lot more sense to do, mm-hmm. right? And if you right. incorporate that in your in your programs like you do, you'll get much better results healing things like diastasis recti and pelvic floor problems than people who only focus on the core and the pelvic floor do. Only do Kegel exercises. Just do more Kegel exercises. Why? Why? You already tried to hold your pee whenever you, you know Whenever you mm-hmm. need a pee, you hold your pee. You can hold your pee. That's fine. It's you cannot hold your pee when you are doing stuff. That is what I need to get people to. Right. Um, and so, you know, I always ask people this. People will tell me, okay, um, I'm a year postpartum, and they say, I still have some leakage issues. And that's an uncomfortable conversation to have, right? Let's right. be very clear. It's not nice for a woman to go to a 48-year-old white guy like myself and by, by the way, pee. I still pee myself a little bit when mm-hmm. I laugh or when, right. I pee yeah. and when I do anything. But I always ask them, when do you pee yourself? Oh, when I lift stuff. It's always when they're lifting stuff. It's always when they're getting up off the floor. When they've just been playing with their toddler on the floor and they're getting up. And when we think about that from a biomechanical perspective and from a, from a movement perspective, it's because getting up off the floor is a tough exercise, right? It's, one, it's why it's one of those five ways you can tell your age and, and, and all that sort of stuff when you read all those magazines. There's a lot happening in getting off the floor. And inevitably, inevitably, how do you get off the floor? <laughs> Or they hold their breath and they exhale at the top. Just mm. exhale through the motion. Fifty percent of your ninety percent of your problems fixed with regards to leakage. Right, right. So, in your practice, have you generally noticed that there is uh, better ways of training men versus women, or um, or just certain things don't make don't make sense if they're male or female? Um, have you noticed that sort of thing? That's, that, that's an interesting question because that again, that, that's one of those. I think ninety oh, percent of the time, right? Just generally speaking, ninety percent of the time, men and women can train the same way. There's nothing mm-hmm. better about. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a as a woman's based exercise or a man's based exercise. Right. right? There's no such thing. Women shouldn't do bicep curls and men shouldn't do glute bridges and all that sort of stuff. Now they're muscle movements. That's fine. However, we all kind of accept now the roles that hormones play in uh, right. in training, and especially with regards to getting results, right? Because we're talking about results-based training. At the end of the day, we're training people to get somewhere. We're not just messing around for movement's sake. We know, for instance, that men who are, and I used to train a lot of, 
alpha-type males, so CEO-types, and they're always stressed. We know that stress, for instance, has a big effect on weight loss. It has a big mm-hmm. impact on weight loss. It's difficult, right? Fight or flight and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I have to know when the, my male clients are stressed uh, if I'm training them for weight loss. And uh, we have to find a way to work with that, work around that. Women have their period. Women have other hormonal issues. Uh, postpartum women still have relaxin and all those sort of hormones. Uh, uh, prolactin, again, is a prime example of a hormone that's still in their body whilst they're breastfeeding. It helps with the breastfeeding. It also means that the last sort of 5, 10 pounds that they might want to lose is impossible to lose simply because the body is saying, I'm still feeding another human being. I'm going to hold on to 5 or 10 pounds. So we shouldn't be forcing that too much. Um, overall, we can. I, I take an individual approach to all my to all my clients mm-hmm. simply because I think the big part of personal training is the first word rather than the second word. Right. right? Um, um, that means that if you're having a crappy day and you're training with me, and you say, "Pete, stress off my head today." Cool. I'm not going to go through my, my session plan full of exercises you hate. We're going to do something fun. I'm still going to get your results. Right? We're going to do something fun, something, we're going to work the pads a little bit, we're going to hit something, we're going to kick something, we're going to get a slam ball, you're going to smash it up a little bit, pardon my French. <laughs> um, so that after the hour, you walk out of there going, dude, I feel so much better. I've had a good workout, I've had a good sweat, but I feel de-stressed. And we know that, for instance, in that state of mind, if you come to be all relaxed and all of a sudden say, hey, Pete, I'm really chill today, man. Awesome. We're going to do some lunges. We're going to do some squats. We're going to do some plyometrics. And, oh, man, that's going to suck. Yeah, it's going to suck. I know. But you'll be training like a beast because your body's in a completely state of a different state of being. And I don't, like I said, this is only for, it depends what you're training people for, right? If, if I'm working with someone whose only goal is to get better at tennis, well, I care a lot less about what your personal state of mind is at. You know, if we're looking into breaking in the top 100 best tennis players in the world, you can bet your bahookie that Andy Murray is always in a bad mood, but he always shows up and always gets stuff done because he needs to get his rotation time a split second quicker or something like that. But that is not the case for most people. Right? Mm-hmm. We can, I, I think personally we can stop training people as if they are athletes so I disagree with Jeff, right? Um, unless they really want to be athletes and unless they are athletes uh, and have the lifestyle that goes with being an athlete. Um, so, yeah, men and women can train in essentially the same way, but every individual should probably train differently from the person standing next to them, right, if that makes right, any sense. Right. No, I, I, that makes perfect sense to me because I have said when I when working with say older clients and that's kind of where I focus my attention on like people mm-hmm. who are 40 and over um, I kind of I'm very um, disagreeing with the idea of senior fitness I don't <laughs> think that really makes a lot of sense yeah. to me um, I think senior fitness is kind of I, I understand that and I'm going to get on a soapbox here and I'll, I'll get off it very quickly but senior fitness I think it, it had the best intentions in mind but I think it's a very kind of um, sort of condescending attitude in a way and just very dismissive but the crux of my belief is that you know you work with people regardless of whatever age they're at you work with people in terms of what their abilities are about yeah. where they stand on where they are right now 
So if they're 75 years old, that's whatever, they're 75 years old. If they're 75 years old and they're, they can do quite a bit, they're still pretty physically capable, then train them that way. Now, if they are pretty debilitated and 75 years old, then train them that way. Train them according to where they are, not what they are. So, no, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, so in terms of like, if you could redo the healthcare system to better address these issues, how would you go about that in your own way? Well, I've done that. that's, that's the big question. I know it's a huge question. <laughs> it's a, it's a difficult one. I think at the end, of, um, so there, there, there are two things that I would do. First, when it comes to, when it just comes to uh, pre-postnatal stuff, right? Because everything else is, is, is too wide for, for my puny brain to be able to comprehend with. And, but just for pre- and postnatal stuff, when you are prenatal, I think it'd be useful if you were told a lot more about what to genuinely expect the physical results on your body to be. What is actually going to happen? So, yes, there will be diastasis recti. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Yes, you're going to have postpartum back and neck pain. Don't worry about it. That'll be fine. Uh, yeah, there might be some pelvic floor problems, including prolapse and all this sort of stuff. Not the end of the world. We can fix this. Right? So first of all, tell people that all this stuff is likely to happen, or at least one of these things is likely to happen, and then, and then tell them it's no big deal. All this stuff can be fixed, because we don't want to scare people. Right? There's no right. need to scare people. And then postpartum, we have to offer these things as solutions. So if you look at France, for instance, in France, every woman who wants it postpartum gets six sessions with a physio, with a woman's health physio, for free. You don't pay for it. You just get sick. You have had a baby. Here's your physio. They pretty much come hand in hand. Your baby gets delivered and automatically uh, you're seen by a woman's health specialist. Now, I'm not necessarily sure about the, about the, the, the level of quality of, of that particular care is, but it seems sensible to me to first inform people that issues might occur and mm -hmm. what to look out for. And then you tell them afterwards, by the way, don't worry about it. We've got it covered, and this is readily accessible to you. Um, most of the emails I get, and I suspect you might, might be the same, but from people with questions is, uh, it's not that they can't ask that question, enter it into Google, right? It's not that there aren't people in the area necessarily that can't answer that question. It's that they can't afford to see someone mm -hmm. that can answer that question. It's, and, and it's sometimes, and I'm, I'm definitely in, in this camp, so don't get me wrong. We tend to forget how, I, I don't know what your hourly rate is, right? I charge roughly in dollars, I charge roughly 40, 50 bucks an hour, something like that. That's about where I'm market. at, yeah. Yeah, that's about the market in, in Edinburgh. Uh, and I'm at the cheaper end of the scale because, you know, I don't need that much money and I mainly spend my days walking dogs and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but in a large part of our countries, 40 bucks buys you a lot more shopping for your kid, especially if you have kids and you need to buy formula, you need to buy diapers and all that sort of stuff. Having a child is expensive. And for the, most people, having a kid is, as I always put it, is a, economically it's a borderline insane decision to make for most people. <laughs> having a child, you're out of your mind. Do you have any idea how expensive that is? But 
it, it, right. it, people do it and people make it work. What we probably should not be doing on top of that is ripping these people off by charging them a hundred bucks just to answer a question or 200 bucks. And I, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of postnatal, postnatal exercise people charge $250 a session and you just like, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I, lo I, I love helping women. Yeah, but you're charging 250 bucks, so you're only helping certain women, right. which is fine if that's what your market is. But let's be honest, the vast majority of people, especially with energy prices shooting up, I know gas prices are through the roof in America, rent is insane, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Most people, a lot of millennials already, can't even afford to buy a house. How are they going to spend 40, 50 bucks once, two, three, four times a week on on healthcare, but and that's essentially what we're providing on healthcare for a genuine for a genuine problem that really affects them, such as pelvic floor problems and, and other postnatal issues. We need to make that stuff available, and it should be out there through trusted sources. Uh, so, not Instagram, not TikTok, and not Facebook, and, and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> because those things are full of really attractive people that will tell you exactly what you want to hear and they tell you there's a 10 minute fix to your nine month long problem. And if only you pay them, whatever. Or, you know, these dancers and these athletes that have had the same body since the age of 12 that are completely ripped and they've been training for such a long time. Mm. They will tell you, you too can look like this after a baby. And you know, that is just not, that's just not how the world works. So we need to, Educate people beforehand. This is what's going to happen. Afterwards, we need to give them affordable access to right. that type of solution. If it was up to me, that's all. That's all we need to do. And I'm, I'm sure we could fix sixties. If people choose not to do it, and you and I both know, you know, most people like don't like to exercise. You can offer this stuff for free to a hundred people. Only twenty will take. Right in the same way that only 100 people want to lose weight, but only 20 actually want to change their diet, and only five of them will actually follow up for long enough to change their diet to, to, to lose mm -hmm. the way they right. actually wanted to lose. That is just the way it is, and that's completely fine. But we have mm -hmm. to make it available. Yeah, do you remember, uh, just just a question, do you remember like several years ago, um, probably 10 or more years ago, there was this thing that was floating around on the internet, probably on Facebook, it was a picture of a woman. She had three kids in front of her, three small kids in front of her. She was in, uh, she was completely like ripped, looked yeah. totally in shape, six pack. You can see it, everything. And, and the, uh, the title of the, uh, the title of the the subtext um, behind it was what's your excuse. And there was this huge backlash <laughs> against it. This enormous backlash. Like all these people just got so mad at this. And because they called it like, you know, you know, fat shaming or, uh, yeah. you know, mother shaming, if that's even a thing or something like that, it is, it was yeah. just, there was, there was a, just a firestorm yeah. anger over that whole thing. And then some, uh, there was even uh, some rebuttal post that came out where you saw a woman with her kids out in front of her and her abdomen was not ripped. It was not shredded. Mm -hmm. It looked like she had had children and, and her rebuttal was like, my excuse is I like it or whatever, something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, um, just going, just going off of what you just said about Instagram and, you know, cause Instagram is becoming more and more just video based stuff. And so you yeah. see a lot of videos and yeah, all these very nice looking people and, you know, some of them are probably 
I will, okay, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Most of them are probably le legit and probably mm -hmm. want to help yeah. and probably could help you. But yeah, you, you only have so much time for the sake of concision. You only have so much mm -hmm. time to really get your message across. And so you have to be the most bedazzling person out there for them to really take notice of you. But who um, knows? Um, you know, um, if you reach out to one, they probably, they maybe could actually help. And, and it's exactly what you said. The interesting thing, because I, I want to say that it was an Asian or Filipino woman that mm. you were talking about uh, in, in that picture three or so years ago, because I remember seeing that. The interesting thing, and it reminded me of something Bill Burr, the comedian, said. Right. Uh, not in a show. He was doing an interview, and he said one of the things he realized early on is that he doesn't need to appeal to everybody. He only needs to appeal to 6,000 people to sell out the 6,000-seater stadium. And he um, definitely doesn't appeal to everybody. That's no, exactly. <laughs> but, but, but the interesting thing, the, the point of his argument was a really interesting one. Is that if he sells out 6,000 seats in every city he goes to, so appeals to, in Edinburgh, 1% of the population, enough for them to buy tickets, he sells out everywhere he goes and becomes a remarkably successful comedian. Right, people that say something like "What's your excuse?" and at the other end, "My excuse is I like it." They only need to appeal to one percent, not even zero point one percent of everybody that sees something, as long as it goes viral for them to make a good amount of money from it, for them to really get a large following. Uh, Andrew Tate is a similar type. He can be really, really offensive. But he only needs to, mildly, to a yeah. tiny amount of people because mm -hmm. a tiny amount of people buying your stuff in this day and age makes you extremely wealthy because yeah. the world is such a big place. Um, and the problem that you or I are finding when we're trying to be reasonable and we're trying to say, okay, this is how it really works in, in, in an hour-long podcast which doesn't contain any bits where you can easily clip the way Joe Rogan likes to do it and go, this is the most offensive bit, this gets a clickbait, this gets the thing, this gets people riled up and angry. I can say something remarkably offensive if you want, by the way. I'm really, really good at it. But, but, <laughs> but just for the clips for the internet. But it means that in an hour-long thing, we're appealing to a much smaller... We, we try to appeal to a wider base, but it's much more difficult for someone sensible like yourself to gain the same traction as the person who understands that even if you say the most offensive thing in the world, 1% of the population will likely agree with you and will likely buy your stuff from right. at, at, at the back of that. And that is where Instagram is, and that's where TikTok is, and that's where Facebook is. So I'm like... Yeah, I, I get what people are trying to do. And everybody, like with politicians, they went into it for the right reasons. They went into it to help people. And then sooner or later, it'd be nice to make some money and get monetized and get sponsorships. And so you just start doing random exercise videos, right? Random exercise videos on Instagram are the worst thing in the world for me. The single worst thing in the world is to follow a random exercise video for a week and then the next week you jump onto the other random exercise video. Because as you know, as a good PT, there needs to be progression in your movement. There needs to be progression in your program. Random YouTube stuff is not progression, it's just doing something different, mm -hmm. which is fine, but it doesn't get you from A to B any more than me turning randomly right and left in the street gets me from 
San Francisco to Chicago. I need to follow a road, right? So it's 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 a difficult thing for people, and and this is why we need to make this stuff available to people and say, listen, all this stuff. There's no big scare story here. There's no big problem here. There's no big sales pitch at the end of it. At the end of this, this is just this is what your situation is. This is what your issue is. This is how we fix it, and let's make that readily available to people. It's the only solution for this stuff, I think. Hey, exactly right. Oh, okay, Peter. So we've been talking for a while now, so we're going to start to wind things down. And what I'd like to do is kind of like a uh, kind of a closing tradition on this podcast is that I like to because we cover so much material and so much is spoken about. So I like to kind of say, uh, ask the person I'm talking to, if you could kind of summarize what you just say, or you can give people one thing to remember if one thing only, if they didn't remember anything else, what would you say it would be? I, I always, with the gas postpartum exercise, I always say, say the one thing. No, I actually say quite a, quite a lot of things. <laughs> um, so, um, Try to work with someone who knows what they're talking about, right? if at all possible. There's nothing scary postpartum. Just try to work with somebody that knows what they're talking about, that looks at the whole picture. Exactly like what, what, what you were saying, if we just start to look at, at things in an isolated manner, you're going to run into trouble, you're going to be disappointed at the end of it. Work with someone like yourself who says, we can make everything better by making everything better rather than we're just focusing on the one thing. Postpartum, that really is all that matters. Making everything better. And, and you know, you train for life. Don't train to get a flat stomach. Don't train to get uh, stronger legs. Train for life. Train for the things you have to do in life is, is what I mean. The flat stomach and the stronger legs will happen if, 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 if you train for it. But you have to train for overall fitness much more than you have to train to do something specific unless you are an athlete or a bodybuilder. Um, that, that would be it. I, I know I've spent a lot of time on my soapbox. I asked you here, I gave you a soapbox. I wanted you to get on it. So, <laughs> no, that's not a problem much at all. <laughs> all right. Well, um, Peter. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's much, much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. This is a lot of fun. And um, all those who are listening, again, uh, the guest here is Peter Lapp. He's a uh, postpartum um, specialist out of Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I will put information that you can reach out to him on the uh, show notes. As usual, I'll give his website, his social media connections, that sort of thing. And um, as far as myself goes, of course, I'm on there too. There's an email address. You can reach out to me personally. There is, of course, the online um, courses that I offer to people who are just having troubles with uh, just general issues like with strength and with coordination, neuromuscular functioning, grip strength, that sort of thing. Those will be on there as well. And... Um, if you are listening to this, if you uh, got value out of this uh, episode or out of this podcast, please consider uh, going to Apple Podcasts and giving a review and uh, subscribing. You can also subscribe on Spotify. It's found there as well. But um, if you can do that, it really helps the show along. It really helps uh, in increase the visibility of the, of the, uh, the podcast. So 
if you would be so kind, please consider doing that. And um, once again, Peter Lab talking to me from um, from the UK. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Absolutely lovely talking to you, huh? Much yeah, it was great. It's great talking to you. All right. Until next time, everybody. Move forever. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps. And I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes. And you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's Ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.